to this book, Habakkuk, it is, I think, of all the minor prophets, it is my favorite. I've always appreciated the message of Habakkuk. He was living in a very difficult time. And what we have in the book of Habakkuk, a prophet like Habakkuk is one who usually speaks to the people of God on behalf of God. But what we have in the book of Habakkuk is we have a conversation that is going on between Habakkuk the prophet and his God. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm in a restaurant, I, people are kind of talking loudly in the table next to me, and I kind of eavesdrop. Uh, I know that's probably not good etiquette, but I kind of like to listen in to what they're saying. And we are given the privilege today to eavesdrop on a conversation between Habakkuk and his God. And we're invited to do so. This is not bad etiquette. This is acceptable. It is God's inspired word, and it has been given to us for our benefit and for our help. And I have, I've entitled this Habakkuk the Perplexed Prophet. He's a perplexed prophet. Even though he is a prophet sent by God to speak for God on behalf of, uh, of God, he's perplexed as he looks around him in the days in which he is living. He has some hard and probing questions that he wants to ask of his God, and in fact, they are recorded for us in this book. When I was in seminary, uh, there were often questions that I was afraid to ask, and I was glad when someone else in the class raised their hand and asked the question, and I'm saying, good, I'm glad you asked that question. I was afraid to ask it. And Habakkuk raises maybe some questions that we have dealt with, or maybe even today we are dealing with. We, too, can be perplexed as believers living in a fallen world. And we often have these same questions upon our mind, even as as Habakkuk did. It's kind of an age-old question. If God is good, if God is all-powerful, why isn't God doing something in the face of the great wickedness that we see in the world today? We've asked those questions, we've thought of them, and Habakkuk has the boldness to even ask it of his God. And as we think about this question and this perplexed prophet, it is really relevant for us today, isn't it? As we watch the news, as we see what's going on in our world, we may be voicing the very same kind of question or complaint that we see here over two and a half millennia ago. It really could have been a book that was just written yesterday. It, it applies to us today. The Bible is always relevant, but this is especially relevant to us as well in our own day. Now, like most of the minor prophets, we don't know a whole lot about Habakkuk. We're not even given his father's name or town where he lives. We just have verse 1, the oracle Uh, about Habakkuk, the prophet, and what he saw. Um, So again, outside of the book of Habakkuk, there's no other information. But he's a man uh, that is a spiritually-minded man. He's a man who thinks deeply and has some very serious questions. He's living in a time that is right prior to the fall of the southern kingdom. We saw last last week in the book of Nahum, 
that the northern or Assyria that had been in power for 150 years, God spoke about the destruction that was to come upon Assyria and upon the capital of Nineveh. That happened in 612. This is just a few years after that. And he ministered probably in these years, 610 to 603. And this is right upon the the coming fall of Jerusalem and Judah, which took place in 586 uh, B.C. So this is the time frame in which he is ministering. And the threat of the day is no longer Assyria. They had been the threat to the people of God prior to this, but now the threat is there's a new bully on the world stage, and it is the kingdom of Babylon. It had been used uh, to bring about the end of Nineveh and the destruction of Nineveh with a coalition of nations, but now Babylon is taking center stage, and it is becoming the, the dominant world power of the day under Nebuchadnezzar. And as we, as we look at the book of Nebuchadnezzar, what we find is that Judah, rather than turning their hearts to God in light of this nation and the things that are going on, they are given over fully to wickedness. And this is the concern that is on the heart of this prophet. There is much injustice, treachery, and bloodshed that is going on. There had been a small revival under King Josiah Uh, just a decade before. He's died, and it was a short-lived revival. And the people have gone back to their old ways and their idolatry and their wickedness. And now King Jehoiakim is on the throne. He's a very wicked king. He offered up his own son as an offering to the pagan gods. And so we look this morning at the perplexed prophet living in a fallen world. It's where we live, isn't it? We too, like him, can often be perplexed. And the, pro- the, the reason for his perplexity is not, his concern is not so much about Babylon at this particular time in his first complaint. His present perplexity is with the people of God, with the people that are living in Judah. And we are given just a little bit of a window into the times in which Habakkuk is ministering in verses 2 and 3. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you? Notice violence and you will not say. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice does, uh, so justice goes forth perverted. He's speaking about his own people, his own nation, the people of Judah, and as he looks around him, and we again see a little window into the times, and we've already talked about this, we'll not really expand on this, was a time of great violence, of evil, plundering, oppression of the weak, strife, litigations, moral corruption, wicked, the wicked surrounding the righteous. It's a time of fear and oppression, persecution. 
And then we also see that the law, he says in verse 4, the law is paralyzed. The Torah is not being carried out. It's paralyzed. People are doing what they want to do. They're not living according to the word of God. Isaiah 59 speaks of these days. Justice, Justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off for truth has fallen in the public squares. Does that sound like our day? Truth has fallen in the public squares, on Main Street. We long to see justice. We long to see the law to be carried out, but we see that the righteous, he says, are are being surrounded by the wicked. So here is his complaint that is given. Why don't you do something about the sins of Judah? God, why don't you do something? Um, As a prophet, he is called to speak to the people and call them to repentance. There's rebellion. And it seems like God is doing nothing from the perspective of Habakkuk. And he's vexed by this. And notice he says, I cry out to you. Twice he says this. I've, I've cried out to you about all that is going on in the land And it seems that you are indifferent. It seems that you don't care. It seems that you are not listening to my prayers. Where is justice? Where is, where, things are not getting better. They're going from bad to worse. And the question is, God, where are you? You're not hearing my prayers. You seem to be silent And you seem indifferent to the state of the nation. We get to verse 5. We see the divine response. That's the complaint. Where are you, God, in the midst of this wickedness in Judah? And and the divine response is given in verses 5 through 11. This is the first response. Well, I am doing something, Habakkuk. I'm not sitting in heaven twiddling my thumbs. I'm not indifferent to what's going on. I've not fallen asleep. Yes, I hear your cries and your pleading, but don't think that I am indifferent and I am inactive. That's what we can often think at times like this. God, where are you? Do you not care? And God says, I am doing something. I am working out my sovereign purpose, but I want you to know this, Habakkuk. It's going to astonish you. It's going to be hard for you to wrap your mind around it. Notice what he says in verse 6 or verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astonished. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Habakkuk, you need to put your seatbelt on and you need to put up your lap tray because we're headed into some turbulent weather. There's a warning that is given, be astonished what I am going to do. And as we look at this, we see that the response that he is going to give to Habakkuk is that God does not always act as we expect him to do. Habakkuk had in his mind what it would be for God to do justice and to intervene and to act at this point. But what God is about to do is 
not what the prophet would be expecting. It's interesting that Paul picks up this very verse in Acts 13 when he is speaking about the gospel that has come and Paul's preaching in Antioch of Pisidia and he's speaking about what God has done. He has sent his son into the world and his son was crucified on a cross, buried and, and raised again. And this is the message that we preach. God has done something that was totally unexpected, at least in the minds of many, even his own disciples. The unexpected God and what he has done in terms of the gospel, his own son crucified upon a tree. And so he says, he says to Habakkuk, you're going to be amazed and astonished at what I am going to tell you. And God does not shy away from telling his saints, his people, things that, things that are deep things about himself, about his plans, and about his purposes that maybe are hard for us initially to really understand and to grapple with. And God's not afraid to tell that to his people, which he does here. Because it is for our benefit that he tells us these things. And this becomes the fertile ground as we think about our God upon which our faith must put down its roots in who God is and his sovereignty. And so what he does is saying, I am raising up, verse 6, I am raising up the Chaldeans. This is the Babylonians. And here is a, a, a little, again, some bullet points to describe to us this wicked nation. They are a bitter and a hasty nation. They exploit other nations. Verse 7, they know nothing of diplomacy and peacemaking. They're just out for themselves. Verse 8, they have armies that are like a pack of hungry wolves at the end of the day, terrorizing others. They're hungry and they're on the hunt. This is the way they treat other nations. They have all the modern weaponry of the day. They have a cavalry. They have their horses. And the cavalry comes in like an evil. And with precision and swiftness, they take their prey. They dispossess nations. Verses 9 and 10, they have utter contempt for other kings. And they seek to humiliate and to shame them. And then notice verse 11. Then they sweep by like the wind and they go on guilty men whose own might is their God. They have made themselves a God unto themselves. They look at their power and their strength. This is their God. We have some people in our world like that today, don't we? Their, their strength themselves, this is their God. This is their God. They're like Nebuchadnezzar. Look at this great Babylon that I have built by my own strength, my own power and might. Their God is their own strength. So he says to Habakkuk, I'm well acquainted with this people. I'm well acquainted with what's going on in the world where you live. I'm not indifferent, but I have a purpose that I'm carrying out, and I'm raising this nation up. And they're going to be an instrument in my hand to bring judgment upon Judah itself. Wow, another hard message. So, as Habakkuk hears this, he has, 
he's going to be complex, uh, perplexed even more, which leads to a second complaint that we have at the end of this chapter, chapter 1. And the complaint is this, how can you use a nation that is worse than us? We see this in verses 12 through 17. But first note what Habakkuk does. And I think we see wisdom here in Habakkuk. He begins to remind himself of things that he knows about his God. And I would suggest to you this is something that is important for us to do when we are perplexed, when we are troubled. And he says in verse 12, Are you not from everlasting? Are you not the everlasting Lord, my God? My Holy One, you are everlasting and you are a holy God. I know that. We shall not die. You are a God who's made promises to us through Abraham. And and we will not die. Lord, you're going to carry forth your purpose. Oh, Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O rock, here's another statement about his God. You are our rock. And we find stability in who you are. You are the unchanging rock, the rock of ages. And you have established them for reproof. And then verse 13, you are of pure eyes than to see evil, and you cannot look at wrong. God, you're holy, and you have to judge sin. You have to deal with sin, and you will. You cannot clear the guilty. And so he reminds himself of these things. You must deal with sin. But then the question is, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So here's the problem. Lord, I have a problem with the instrument that you are using to carry out this event. Because look at this nation, and he refers to them as being, they're like on a fishing trip. And they go and they, they sweep in their nets the nations around them. With hook and with net, they just gather them in indiscriminately. They just take over other nations. They are a wicked people. And then they sacrifice to their nets. This is their God, their strength, their might. And they make offerings to their dragnet. And then they live in luxury and their rich food that they have gathered from their plunder. Notice verse 17. Is he then to keep on emptying his nets and mercilessly killing nations forever? We deserve better than this, Lord. They are a wicked nation. Are you going to just let them continue to go on their way? I think we see, again, another point of wisdom here. First of all, I think it's helpful for us when we are perplexed to recall what we know about our God. God, there's a lot of things I don't know and a lot of things I don't understand about what's going on in my life and the world around me, but here are things that I do know. You are holy. You are sovereign. You're pure eyes than to behold evil. You will never approve of evil. But another thing we see of the wisdom of this man is in chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower. 
and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer, uh, what I will answer concerning my complaint. And so here is the wisdom of, of Habakkuk at this point. I'm going to get myself on a watchtower. This is a place, uh, an adv- a place of advantage, to be able to see, like a watchman on the wall, he's able to see if an enemy's coming. He's able to see if a messenger is coming. He's put in a position of preparedness, attentiveness, to hear, Lord, what you would say to me, because I'm not understanding what's going on. And so we have this question that is offered, Lord, how is it that you can use such a nation as this? They're worse than us. But he puts himself in a position, I need some correction, I need instruction here. And so we have the response of the Lord, the divine response. Beginning at verse 2, the Lord answered me. He does answer his prayer. He does speak to the prophet and he says, I want you to, what I want you to do is what I'm going to tell you. I want to write these things down and make it plain on tablets so that whoever reads it may run. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end and it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come and it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So he positions himself in this watchtower, the Lord hears his prayer, the Lord responds to him, and he is going to tell him, I will bring Babylon down. Though it is going to be an instrument by which I'm going to bring judgment necessary judgment and chastisement upon my own people, I want you to know this, that Babylon will come down. We see this in verses uh, 6, 5 through 20. And we see that there are given five woes to this nation, the Babylonians. And again, we have quick bullet points that are given. And really, they're summed up in this. What goes around comes around. (laughs) What this nation has done to other nations, it is going to come back on their own heads. There will be a just recompense upon this nation. So verses 6 to 8, woe to him who ambitiously lusts for new conquests and gains plunder. The plunderer will become the plundered. Verses 9 through 11, woe to him who tramples on others to exalt himself. He who tramples will be trampled. Verses 12 to 14, woe to him who builds a city by unscrupulously oppressing others. Well, his city that was built by cruelty, it will fall. It will be destroyed. Verses 15 to 17, woe to him who shamelessly humiliates others. His shame will come. His glory will be turned to shame. And then verses 18 to 20, woe to him who foolishly resorts to silly idols. These idols are nothing, and they're looking to their idols, but they are nothing. They are not gods at all. And they will be as teachers of lies. They will be deceived by them. So they do all this. 
but God takes notice of it. And though he uses Babylon to chasten his own people and has his own sovereign purposes in that, he's going to preserve them and keep them. There will be a remnant that will come forth. He'll restore them. But even though he uses them, he is going to bring about judgment upon them, just judgment for what they have done. We see, I think, in the day in which we live, the significance and the relevance of this book of of Habakkuk for our own day. As we see many of these things going on, not just out there in the world around us, but more and more in our own nation, don't we? And we we feel like we feel like Habakkuk. We we see the law being not kept, being paralyzed. We see wickedness that is abounding. And this week again, as we think about the Supreme Court and the issue of abortion, we see people that are wanting the right. It's a civil right, they say, a constitutional right to do with the baby in my womb as I please. And we say, how long, oh Lord? And so as we look at this, I think that there are things that we can learn from this. There is comfort and help for us because we are often perplexed, even as Habakkuk. And you know, we're not alone in this. There were times when David was perplexed, when Asaph was perplexed. He looked around and he saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's trying to live a holy life, and it seems like the wicked are prospering, and his life is just full of problems. We've been there, haven't we? If God loves me, why why am I going through the hard and difficult things that I'm going through? So David, Jeremiah, Asaph, they all struggle with these things, and he gave help to them. He instructed them. He was patient with them, even as he is with Habakkuk. He's faithful to them. He doesn't chide them, but he helps them. And so God gives help to his children when they are perplexed. So some things that I think we learn here from Habakkuk, the perplexed prophet provides help for perplexed saints. The first is this. We need to have the kind of disposition that Habakkuk had. We see that In chapter 2, verse 1, I'm going to put myself in a place where I will hear, and I'm waiting to hear from God. And so I put myself on the watchtower. I need to be instructed here. And when I hear from him, I'll, I'll need to be corrected. I need my thinking to be changed. And I put myself in a position of humility before God. And I think this is wise. The the name Habakkuk means to embrace or to cling. And I think we find Habakkuk as, even though he's perplexed, he's, he's clinging to his God. And he's wanting to hear from him. He's humbling himself before his God. Isaiah 66, the Lord says, where's a house that you could build for me? Is there anything that we can do to impress God? Absolutely not. But to this one I will look. This is the one that I will look to, the Lord says. On him who is poor, who's contrite of spirit, who's humble, and who trembles. He trembles at my word. James says that God is opposed to the proud. But what does he give to the the humble? He gives grace to them. 
And so we position ourselves on the watchtower, and we do not have to await a word that comes from the Lord. We already have the word of God, don't we? And we can position ourselves on the watchtower and say, Lord, speak to me through your word. There are things that I don't completely understand. There are things that perplex me. Speak to me. Give me a humble heart. May I hear from you. And may I tremble at your word. A second thing that we see is we need to have what, I, what we might call a big God theology. There are so many places in the American church today where theology is about a half inch, quarter inch, one eighth inch thick. We need to have a big God theology. And Habakkuk finds the solution to his enigma only when he climbs to his watchtower and there by faith he sees the world that is in ruins around him and falling apart seemingly but he's soon brought back to the firm belief in the providence of God. God is on his throne. God is a sovereign God. God is a God who is sovereign over kings and kingdoms and nations. We learn this especially in Daniel, don't we, from the life of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. It was Nebuchadnezzar who came to learn that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom, and his kingdom is Uh, from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth, they are considered as nothing, and he does according to his will in the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. And there is no one who can restrain his hand or say unto him, what are you doing? He is sovereign. And then he says this, now I, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, And glorify the king of heaven because all he does is right and all his ways are just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. He knew that personally. Here is a big picture of who our God is. He is the sovereign Lord of lords. Where is your God? The people of God were asked in Psalm 115. And their response is, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases and we trust him. It is so important for us to come to see and to know that the God to whom we belong, he is the sovereign God of nations, sovereign God over Babylon and Assyria and the nations of our own day. He is a God who is sovereign and in verse Five of chapter one, or verse six. Behold, I, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Now we have a lot of questions. I have a lot of questions. I don't know how it is that God, who is sovereign, who, whose the heart of the king is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord, He turns it whichever way He wants. I don't understand how all that works together. They're responsible for what they do, but God is using it to accomplish his own purpose. Even the wrath of men shall praise him. But we need to understand that our God is sovereign. And this is a place for us to stand in times when we are perplexed. Notice verse 20. 
the Lord, uh, chapter 2, verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. He reigns above. Let all the earth keep silence before him. May we be humble before him. May we trust him, the one who is sovereign and carrying out his own purpose. And again, there's mystery in this. William Cowper writes and says, God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds with never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and he works his sovereign will. Brothers and sisters, here is help and hope for us in the world in which we live today where we can be perplexed. God is carrying out his purpose. And we can reduce that just down to our own personal life as well. In our own personal life, he is sovereign over us as well. And he is working all things together for what? For good to those who love him and have been called by him. The third thing that we see here in Habakkuk and the call that is given to us is in chapter 2 and verse 4, the need for persevering faith. Behold his soul, and I think he's looking to the Babylonians, his soul is puffed up, and it could include those people of Judah as well who were apostate and unbelieving and proud. And we see a contrast here between the worldling and the believer. The worldling is one who is proud, who is puffed up. They're not upright within themselves. And then there is the righteous. They are those who live by faith. This is the grand theme of the Bible is and to live by faith. This is what we are called to do. We have been saved by faith, haven't we? This is one of our confessions that justification, salvation is, is that we by faith have trusted in Christ. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone. It's not by works that we have done. It's not by anything that we have accomplished. It's not by religious deeds that we have done. We've It's not through baptism or church membership or anything that we have done. We have laid hold of Christ by faith and by faith alone. Someone said faith, the acronym for faith is forsaking all, I take him. I take Christ. That's what faith does. It lays hold of Jesus, who is a savior who is sufficient to save me in every way that I need to be saved. But you know, we... We are saved by faith, but we continue in faith. Day two as a Christian, after we've called upon Christ, is to be a day of faith. We continue to live by faith. We, are, we walk by faith. We're sanctified by faith. Again, this is the work of God and grace. And, and we trust and rest in him and who he is and his promises to us. And so the just as they live in a fallen world where they are often perplexed, we live by faith. We trust the promises of God. We rest in what he has revealed to us in his word. And then, fourthly, we see the need for an eschatological worldview. Notice chapter 2 and verse 14. Right in the midst between these woes that are being pronounced upon Babylon, this little ray of hope. Actually, it's a big ray of hope 
that is given here in verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Assyria went down, Babylon went down, all the nations are going to go down, but the glory, the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, even as the waters cover the sea. This is summed up just an eschatological hope that we have as believers. Jesus is going to come. All nations will be his footstool. He will rule and reign as king of kings and the Lord of lords. There will be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells and the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth. What a day. What a day that is going to be. And so we are told to wait and trust. And that's the last point. There's the need for patience. There's the need for patience as we live in this world. Notice verse 3 of chapter 2. He speaks about this vision. He says, for this, still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end and it will not lie. If it seems slow, Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. What I'm telling you, Habakkuk, it's going to come to pass. You just need to be patient. I'm going to judge Babylon in my time, in my way. I'm going to bring in the new heavens and the new earth. You need to trust me and you need to wait patiently. Someone says we need to learn about the slowness of God. God doesn't work on our timetable, does he? We want things, we want them cleared up right now. But God doesn't work on our timetable. We're going to talk more about this tonight, about waiting upon the Lord. But here is this call for us to see, again, the big picture and what God is doing and just being able to wait, to wait patiently, doing what God has called us to do, but know that God is going to resolve all things one day in the end. And so here's a call to wait upon him. Psalm 37 says, For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Wait on the Lord and keep his way. And he will exalt you to inherit the land. One of the reasons that God delays bringing judgment into our world is that this is the day of salvation. This is the day of salvation. Paul speaks about this in Romans 2. And there is a warning that is given there. God is being patient. God is being long-suffering. And this ought to lead you to repentance rather than hardening your heart if you're here without Christ God's patience with this world and the wickedness that is going on is one reason is because it is the day of salvation and there's a call to repent and to flee to Jesus Christ who alone is the savior of sinners as we close, I invite you to turn or take the insert that is in your bulletin. And we'd like to sing this hymn that was written by William Cowper, who himself suffered some very hard and grievous things in his own life. 
And yet he came to be able to write this wonderful hymn about trusting this sovereign God who moves in mysterious ways and we can trust him. Uh, This is to the tune, a familiar tune, O God, our help in ages past. Let's stand together as we sing. Thank you.